So thanks everyone, I'm Tom Edwards. Um, I'll be moderating our, our discussion here. I wanted to first of all thank UBS and the Eagles Foundation for making this possible. Um, as a lifelong Philly guy, anytime you can spend some time in South Philadelphia watching the Eagles play is a good day. And as a father of somebody on the spectrum, anytime you can share the stage and the room with people trying to change the world, that's an even better day. So thank you. Let's start with Steven. Yes, who founded sir. Popcorn for the People. Stephen, tell us the story. How did Popcorn for the People start? And as you tell the story, think, would you have done anything differently today, knowing what you know now? 2014, my 22-year-old son, Samuel, high-functioning autistic young man, and he can only get jobs that are sort of beneath him, a little demeaning, just <laughs> shaking your head. He's pushing shopping carts, a major supermarket chain. I'm not going to say who, ShopRite. And <laughs> you heard that? <laughs> and then one July day, he goes to work and forgets to put on his suntan lotion. And he comes home and he is red as a lobster. Now, my wife, is, she's the real rock star. She's a developmental pediatrician. There's only like 800 of them in the, in the country. She had been a general pediatrician. Sam was diagnosed, she went back to school. It was actually the first year they had fellowship. She was a, her professors were teaching the first year of fellows in developmental pediatricians. And by the way, at the end of the year, because the fellowship, you had to take a written boards. It was the first time they ever gave the written boards at Barbie study for. What do you think happened? That's right, Barbie passed and her professors all failed. <laughs> so she said to me, Stephen, you're not worth much to me, but one thing I know you can do, you can do business. I said, please, go set something up for Sam. So, you know, life, life's funny, right? Whether you believe in God or you don't, sometimes things happen that make you stop and think. I go, I say, well, I don't know what to do. I, I get a local, you know, they used to have the local directories of businesses for sale. Right? It's all on the web now. I open it up. The very first thing is a popcorn store being sold for $30,000 at Free Home Mall. I said, what the heck? Sure, it makes sense, right? It's safe, it's easy, everybody likes popcorn. We go, we start it, and it's going really well, even though we're beginning. And then the best thing happens to us. They throw us out of the mall. They got a, <laughs> they got a better offer. An international popcorn company comes in, gives them about a half million dollars a year in rent. So they throw us out, so we go to the East Brunswick Mall. And this is getting to your point of mistakes. So by the way, my first recommendation, because everybody, and even last night, people coming up to me, what can I do to form a small business? I have a relative, I have a son, whether it's profit or nonprofit. So the first thing, by the way, if you notice, I said we put in 30,000. Don't overinvest at the beginning. You're gonna need more capital. We ended up putting in another 35 over the year, but don't overinvest at the beginning. The next thing is, we get in now in the East Brunswick Wall, we have kitchens, we start making sandwiches with the popcorn, we start making Belgian waffles, and we learn our <laughs> second mistake. Stick with what you're good at. Stick with one thing if possible. Keep your focus narrowed if you're forming a small business. From that point on is we make good popcorn and we make great popcorn. And now the popcorn's world class. And I have no part of making it, so I take no credit. But if you had it, it's really good. And now we get our next big lesson. And that is about what people would call branding, marketing, so forth. Local organic say SEO is still the best way for a small business to start. Whether you're selling, we're going to church bazaars, we're going to literally games. I mean, it seems silly now. We're, you know, we're here in the Eagle Stadium selling. 
But that was really worth the time and effort to build up your brand, okay? Now we get our first big break. We keep bugging Rutgers. Sodexo is their food team. Please, let's do a game. Let's do one game, okay? They send down Mark Tango from Sodexo. He comes in, we have a presentation, we got slides, we got power, we got everything. He walks into the store, he goes, let me see that pop-up. Hmm, let me see that pop-up. All right. All right, you're in. I go, <laughs> we, can, we can do a Rutgers football game? He goes, no, you don't understand. You can do all the Rutgers football and the men's basketball, and the women's basketball, and the soccer, and the gymnastics. Come by Monday, we'll work out the details. And he leaves. Yeah. <laughs> and then comes to, I know one of your favorite topics, the value. The value that gets added to the dollar if you approach the public and they know that you're involved, whether it's autism, other, other developmental disabilities. When you get to Rutgers, we've learned by now, we put autism and employment on everything. We employ autism, we are autistic. If we could have done it in Latin, we put it up in Latin. Everywhere, on all our bags, on all our tents, everyone can see it. And then almost just as an afterthought, we say, why don't we have the kids, and I say kids, some of them are in their 50s, a lot of them is their first job, why don't we have them sample the popcorn? And that was a huge value move that we learned because now you're walking along, you know, you look and you see the autism, maybe you're you slow for a half second, and then a young man or woman comes up to you. How many people are going to walk away and say no to an autistic man or woman? And from that, the sales just started to go way, way up once we did that. Once we bought them, we had the young men women cooking the popcorn. We had them marketing the popcorn. We had them labeling everything. But to bring it right out into the public's face, sales jumped, I don't know, like, like something crazy, like 300% in a sales jump, all right? And um, so I would say, would he, uh, at that time also, if you want to go to things that we've learned, we, we had a lot of volunteer cause. Now look, the people in this audience are a skewed population. A lot of charitable work, donations, legwork that's done here. This is not the typical of the public. People come forward, they want to volunteer, they mean it in their heart, but only a small percentage actually follow through with doing. I see a lot of people shaking their heads. If you're going to start a small business, okay, keep the volunteers narrowed, focused, and not too great in number because you really, at the end of the day, you have to be willing to stay late. You have to be willing to come in on weekends, and it's hard to get volunteers to do that. So I got a million other stories. I'm going to turn back to you, Ted, before Okay, you. thanks, Steve. Yeah. No, that was great. I, I love it. That's great. But, so, but let, me, let me come back to, sure. to one thing you were saying. You, you were talking about, you know, building the brand and becoming, people becoming more aware. So what have you done to make people, uh, Popcorn for the People, so well known? And can other people make use of that business model, okay. perhaps even copy? Sure. Besides the red shirt, I mean. Or so, you know, the red shirt, and those can't see, right, this is, this is the loudest shirt here, right? No one's allowed to show it. Uh, the, the, the team that worked on this, they spent weeks. They had a, a color board. To me, it all looked red. But they said, no, 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 Dr. Beer, it's not just red. This one's magnetic red. This one's red. And, and they ended up working on that. So that was, the, the, the marking's a big part. Someone, again, not me, I can't take any credit, came up with a brilliant idea because we moved now into a 4,000 square foot processing center. We haven't been thrown out of that one yet. We have <laughs> packed the capacity, and someone comes up with a simple idea of 
when we sell tins for gifts, let's include a thank you card. On the thank you card, let's have the worker who actually made it sign it. And this we call is a Mia card, this young lady Mia. She just decided to draw pictures on it. So now all the other workers are like, oh, they, I want to draw a better picture than, than Mia. <laughs> and these became such a powerful message when people got their holiday tins and so forth. So, Ted, that's a, hopefully a good answer for you. No, that's, 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 that's really clever. That's innovative. I love that. One, la one last question, Steve. Mm -hmm. um, how did it change over time? You know, you, you, were, you were talking about that, you know, you, you put the, the autism brand out there and people respond to it and they'll buy your product. Have you seen a change? Is it easier as time goes by? No change at all? What do you see? So we had this, 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 this woman, Agnes. Agnes is amazing. She's a severely disabled child. She would drive an hour a day to help out. Every day, Monday through Friday, wouldn't take a penny. She was that rare volunteer. And she's the one who came up with all the flavors. You've had the cookies and cream where she melts the white chocolate and has the kids smash up the Oreos and, and put it on the popcorn. She came up with the dark chocolate espresso. They melt a Belgium dark, dark chocolate. And then we infuse Bustello espresso into it. So she came up with all these ideas. And this is a perfect example of your, your question. We, a lot of people here from Chicago, right? What's, oh, I think a lot of Chicago people. Everyone knows the, the, the Chicago's proud of, of, of one popcorn, right? The, right? They always say, yeah, the, the, the cheddar Garrett. Garrett's Garrett's. Garrett's makes the, the, the baked cheddar cheese popcorn. Agnes is getting nuts about it. She wants to, you know, she wants to make it better than, than Garrett's. And so she has an idea. She calls up one of the main popcorn suppliers. They supply flavoring, equipment, so forth. They realize when she gets to the flavoring department and Garrett's is out of Chicago. She goes, um, I'm just curious, which cheese factory like, supplies the most cheese you know, in, in Chicago? <laughs> and the woman at the other end goes, look, I know what you're doing. <laughs> Agnes goes, no, no, you don't understand. I have an autistic daughter. We work at this place. It's nonprofit employment. She goes, OK, thank you, boy. Hangs up. All right, Agnes figures I gave it a shot, right? Yeah. Two minutes later, ding-a-ling-a-ling. I says, hello? Because Agnes, it's me who we're just talking to. I'm out in the parking lot now. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Sheva's farm in Springfield, Illinois. Kill him. <laughs> so yes, people are out there, and they're willing to help. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That's an outstanding story. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I'm going I'm to pivot to David, the, the, the CEO of Autocon who uh, a very different uh, business model, if you will, supplying um, business services to, to corporate clients. And, and David, I'd like to ask you, um, most of us, I think, understand that, that there's, in addition to a spectrum of neurodiversity, there's a spectrum of capability that's intertwined in, into the neurodiversity spectrum as well. How does that interact with the value proposition that you bring to your clients, and how do you leverage that to win new business? Yeah, yeah great question. Thank you, Tom, and UBS. Thanking, thank you for having us. Uh, Brian, Ryan, and Sarah. I'd like to thank uh, Jeff Hunter as well, who is our conduit into the UBS community. This is a wonderful event to be at, and thank you all for your interest. 
So Tom, super question. In fact, when I saw the name of this panel, uh, I immediately emailed Sarah's team and I said, I think I want to change it uh, from <laughs> impacting autism through business and investments to impacting business through autism. Because really, that's what we do. Uh, we're a for-profit. Uh, every single one of our technologists is on the autism spectrum. It's basically a software services firm. So think about all things data analytics, software development, QA, CRM stuff, all of that. And um, we are, as I said, a for-profit. And we're super proud of the fact that we're a for-profit. We believe that the principles of business are needed in order to help solve some of society's challenges. Now, of course, we support philanthropic efforts. Of course, we support legislative efforts and efforts of individuals. But I'm an operator. I'm a business operator. And if I'm going to make a difference, the way I know in, to make a difference is people, process, and tools. And so that's what we've been developing at Otacon. And uh, there is no doubt about it. Some people do engage with us with a little bit of an altruistic bent. So people come to us because they're nice people that want to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And oftentimes when we work with new clients, it's, because, it's through a little bit of a DEI lens where they want to work with us because they want that inclusion within their own organization. But there's no doubt about it, the organizations stay with us because of the performance advantage that our people bring to the table. Uh, that is not a marketing slide. Uh, that is absolutely the truth. Um, we grow with organizations because of the work that we do. So think about a Venn diagram. You have our community that is 85% underemployed. And we've all probably experienced what underemployment means. It could be an individual that is very highly skilled, but because of the way in which we run the traditional interview process, they've been filtered out of being in the running for that job. 85% uh, is measured in that regard. There's also another version of underemployment, which is the autistic technologist, and we see this all the time, that has gone from place to place to place and has never been able to grow roots because they're not in an autism-friendly environment. That's one side of the Venn diagram. The other side of the Venn diagram is 3.7% un unemployment, which is what we're dealing with in the country today. And so when you can support these highly skilled individuals through an autism-friendly recruitment process, and then at the point that that autism-friendly recruitment process ends, support them in the workplace. So think about workplace efficiency and workplace effectiveness through employment coaches, sometimes known as job coaches. That's how you can deliver value in the workplace. And that's how we've grown. So Otacon, and I don't mind telling you this, we've grown 65% year over year. Every single dollar of that growth rate has actually come from organizations that are choosing to do more with us because they've experienced the performance advantage of the team when supported appropriately in the workplace. Wow. Yeah. When I ran a business, if I delivered 65% growth year after year, I would have been a hero in my corporation. I know yeah. that, man. Chris, that's, Chris, that's a big number. Chris people. thinks I'm a hero. <laughs> that's a big number. Um, so let me let me follow up there. So so you you someone with perhaps an altruistic motive gets you in the door. Mm -hmm. Then you prove yourselves. 
you grow the, the, the reputation so that you can, you can uh, develop more business through those clients, those existing clients. Do the clients gain anything else from you besides the, the, the obvious? Yeah, Tom, that's a great question. So when you've placed a couple of hundred people in an organization and within a client's technical team, whether that be a project services team where we're doing some work for a technical end or whether that be more of kind of an augmentation motion where we have our technologists who are W2 employees of Auticon joining our client's team like we actually do at UBS and then doing a phenomenal job. Um, when, you, when you do that and when you have that muscle memory and you repeat it time and time and time again, what we've realized is what we have of a, as a body of work is yes, this kind of middle of the Venn diagram where you've got 85% underemployment and then the 3.7% unemployment rate. But what we've realized is we've built the intellectual property on how to do this. And moreover now, our clients are engaged with us. Yes, because they have a talent shortage. Yes, because they need creative alternative sources of talent for their teams. But also there is a genuine genuine willingness out there to for clients to learn how to do this, to embrace neurodiversity in the workplace, to embrace neuroinclusion in the workplace. And there are a number of organizations that can do that from an academic perspective and they understand how to do it. What we've realized is we've done it a couple of hundred more times. And so the intellectual property that resides within the business is helping our clients and changing the nature of the relationship with those clients so we can deliver those insights. And you know, it's, it's, it's inappropriate for us to keep this kind of in a proprietary fashion. So what we've been doing here over the last year or so is working with clients and making sure that they understand how they can be inclusive in their own organization by using some of the principles that we've stumbled upon and are supporting them through that journey. Terrific. Let me ask one more question. This, this, the growth of awareness that you, you get in there and people begin to, to connect the dots that there's talent and, it, and it's not in spite of the neurodiversity, it's because, because of the neurodiversity. When you align that talent with a business need, it can be very powerful. Has this awareness grown over time? Yeah, I believe so. I'm a newbie into this community and I've got a lot of respect for the individuals. I hear about how many people are in this room that have been along for, you know, 10, I heard 16, 18 years. Um, in the first quarter of next year, I will be doing this for three years. Um, and so I'm a newbie in the community. And I think it's way beyond my algorithm on LinkedIn. I know that once you get involved in a particular community, that that's what you get fed. I personally have seen over the last couple of years, a real awakening uh, to the possibilities. I think it's been somewhat, there's been economic drivers, there's been talent uh, uh, dynamics that have, uh, have, have uh, contributed to this. But I also think that organizations are genuinely looking at what inclusivity means for them. And neuroinclusivity has become more of a topic. It's become more of a dinner party conversation Whereas previously, even just three years ago, I believe that when I started those conversations, people were like, what is that? Yeah. And now I do believe, and, it's, and it's, I know it's difficult for this room because you are consumed with it and you have been kind of pushing 
and supporting this community for as long as you have. And I know that it's difficult to see those incremental changes over time. As a newbie into this world, I can absolutely say that I think that it's a lot more um, awareness. And I believe that we're on the verge of true inclusion and organizations really understanding because of the di these dynamics that they have an opportunity within their own organizations. And I actually believe that the next generation of employees are just gonna demand it. Like the, the, the values that the people that are leaving college now and the people that are taking their first ever jobs are different than when I did that. And it's basically table stakes, you've got to do it. Great, that's terrific. That's great, great answer, um, David. Um, very, very encouraging answer as well. I wanna, I wanna pivot to, to Chris Mayle, the, the co-founder of Autism Impact Fund. And, and, and Chris, so we, we, we've, heard this, we've heard David's story, we've heard Steve's story. Um, I know of, of dozens of other similar stories in the Philadelphia region and around the globe. I'm sure everybody in this room probably knows of dozens of stories. And, and the, 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 the image or the, the, the overall story that emerges are these isolated heroic efforts, these isolated spots of heroic efforts trying to overcome the barriers and do some good things. And that's wonderful and it's, it's very encouraging. But how do we jumpstart this? How do we make this more than isolated outposts of heroic efforts? Yeah. Um... Thank you for the question, and again, thank you, UBS and Eagles. I think in our journey, this is the coolest moment seeing this room, and, and thank you for all the work as a parent um, seeing this room and what everyone's doing is just incredible. So I, I think to answer your question, it's best, you know, the ethos of the Autism Impact Fund is to create, you know, innovation and scale at a level you can see from space, and it's creating this ecosystem, and our mission is to really, you know, revolutionize the uh, status quo for diagnosing, treating, and living with autism. We don't separate those. We look at it together as the whole child, like you had mentioned, Doreen. Um, so I think it requires us coming together like we are, um, continuing to scale, and, and really driving that innovation across all of those verticals. Okay. Let me dive a little bit further into that. So we, we, we've heard about consumer goods, right? Popcorn, who doesn't like popcorn? We've heard about business services, critical to corporate clients. And, and at least to me, the story that emerges from this is that th there's a large diversity of business models. There's no one silver bullet. There's no one size fits all. So uh, how do we manage this diversity, th this chaos almost? How do we scale up this creative chaos? Yeah, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun question and we're living it. Uh... We're living it daily. So I think we all have our roles to play. Um, we very specifically, unapologetically, are early stage venture fund that look for market returns. So we're able to support those early interventions. We are a proud investor of Autocon and the 65%. Keep it up. Do it again next year, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're at an inflection point, at a true inflection point. Um, you know, again, piggybacking off of all the hard work that's been done over the years. We're now seeing non-altruistic capital. We're seeing employers. It's not just feel good anymore. It's smart business, and we're seeing opportunities and more capital flow into it. So I think we just continue to do this together, work together, um, and we're at a really exciting time. Okay, terrific, terrific. Um, 
I have one last question before I open it up to, 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 to your questions um, that I'd like everybody to weigh in on. And we've heard three different perspectives of, of how to approach this, this issue of employment. And all of us in the room can do the math, right? There's one and a half percent of the population, 80% unemployment. You know, we can, we can do the math and look at this and see that we're measuring success in hundreds of jobs created when the need even just in the Philadelphia region is tens of thousands. And that's true all over the world. I'm gonna come back to this theme again. I want every one of you to weigh in on it. Let's start with Steve. How do you scale up what you do to make more impact? Right. So first off, well, that's a great question. So scaling up, the, the problem that you've run into, the first problem, of course, is, is capital. So let's say this in the consumer goods is distribution, right? You'd want to self-distribute, so just do simple math. You need, you need trucks, right? You need drivers. It becomes very difficult. So I think the first thing is that you need, you, you need to have access to capital. The number two is, although none of us like bureaucracy, I think because of the situation we have, it can become chaotic. So you need, whether you're bringing in job coaches, support staff, and they have to be part of the team. So people are able to, you know, to stay within the rules of a business. Because as you had said, at the end of the day, it, 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 you know, it, it is a, a business. Um, and I think you know, those become very important. And you, you need people who are willing to take a chance. We have people call us from other states, and quite often they'll just, they'll just get scared. And so to scale up, I think you have to get over those fears. I think you have to have access to funding. And I think you have to understand that there's that dichotomy, that paradox, that yes, we are a business, but we have a, a group of workers who are being left out. So we have to make sure they are in a good situation, something that I can hand it, whether I'm handing it in a manual, whether, however form it is, to the next person who's setting up in Florida. I think those are the, the key things for scaling. David or Chris? Uh, from, from a professional services perspective, the key to scale is listening to clients, and that might sound super, super simple. I'm sure there's some people in this room that have been in business services and pro services and B2B services and understand this. It literally is listening and true listening uh, and pivot based on what you're hearing. Uh, and so for us, the ability to scale um, there's a macro element to it, which is kind of in this room that was a question on the table over there that was asked earlier of Doreen, which is kind of this, you know, this community type uh, dynamic. I think as a community, we've got to find common ground. We've got to come together. We've got to start understanding what we share and what we have in common rather than what separates us. And so there's that macro effort that I think everybody can make. But from an operational perspective, it's basically listening to clients. Listening and then responding is the, the, the biggest impact that I can have. And then, sorry, I don't want to take Chris's thunder, but there's another <laughs> element to it as well, which is being a good portfolio company yeah. in this broader vision that the Autism Impact Fund is bringing to say, okay, we've got data points that can help there. Thank you. Sorry. For us, it's it's... Finding great companies, right? When I, my son was diagnosed nearly five years ago, uh, profoundly impacted. And on my journey, 
uh, all the great work had been done, but there was holes that we saw and opportunity for innovation. And to do that, we're a venture capital firm. We have to take risks. Some of them will win, some of them won't. Uh, we're comfortable with that, that's our job. Uh, so finding good companies, proving that we can um, deliver returns and impact, and then growing from there. And thank you to, you know, there's quite a few people in here that are involved with us. Um, they took the risk and believed in us, and it's working. And as David alluded to, we have 11 companies now. We've created an ecosystem. I think a lot of people say that, um, but we're actually seeing it work. And the synergies between the companies and them feed off of each other. We had uh, our CEO forum last week. It was 11 CEOs. We now have 11 companies. And the interaction was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Usually everyone wants to just kind of keep it to themselves, but they're sharing data afterwards, thanking us um, and, and really working together. So proving that model out, showing the impact uh, will allow us to then go do fund two, fund three, and get really massive amounts of capital. And I think that's the inflection point we're at. I think. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Hope. Yes. 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 Yeah. Not hope. Yes. That's the inflection point. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Great answer.